Occasionally, it might be good idea to be honest about American foreign policy. And that includes the fact that America has overthrown governments all over the world, in Chile, in Guatemala, in Iran. And when dictatorships, whether it is the Chinese or the Cubans, do something good, you acknowledge that. Senator Bernie Sanders has catapulted to frontrunner status among Democrats after a strong win in Nevada, leading the pack in delegates and national polls across the country. His populist message is resonating with voters. But what about his colleagues in Congress? What are Bernie Sanders' key accomplishments in the Senate? And can we glean anything from his time as a senator as to what a potential Sanders presidency would look like. We sat down with congressional expert Norm Ornstein, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute think tank in Washington, D.C. And later, I'll update our podcast from two weeks ago on the coronavirus with CQ Roll Call reporter Andrew Siddons. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention now says that it cannot stop its spread to the United States. First, to Norm Ornstein. Well, thanks, Norm, for coming on the show. We appreciate sure. it. My pleasure. So during the South Carolina debate, former Vice President Biden criticized Senator Sanders for his record in Congress, saying he hadn't accomplished much. You talk about what we're talking about with Bernie. Bernie, in fact, hasn't passed much of anything. The fact of the matter is... Was that fair? It's a fair criticism in a lot of ways. If you're looking at the legislative records of senators from the generation uh, that uh, Sanders has been a part of, he wouldn't rank high on that list. Uh, On the other hand, he wouldn't rank at the lowest of the low. In particular, for a period of time, Bernie Sanders was the chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee. As the chairman of a committee, he had some real power and responsibility. And we did see some veterans health reforms that were enacted. If you look beyond that and think about the places where Sanders had a major impact, he says from his time in the House and even in the Senate that he had an awful lot of bipartisan amendments added. Look at that more deeply and the substance is not really broadly there. He certainly claimed credit during that debate, and there's some reason to say that it was accurate that in the uh, debate over the Affordable Care Act, he insisted on and got some money for community health centers. Um, On the other hand, we have not seen really a vibrancy in those community health centers, but he did have an impact in uh, adding something to the Affordable Care Act. More broadly, you don't see a heavy legislative imprint from Bernie Sanders. So when you contrast him with some of his colleagues over the years who were known for writing legislation, for working across the aisle, people like Senator McCain, Senator Ted Kennedy, he's not among those. You certainly wouldn't even put uh, Bernie Sanders in the same category as a Ted Kennedy, for example, who had his fingerprints all over landmark legislation in a whole host of areas. Now, you have to say there are many criteria that one could use for determining the effectiveness of lawmakers. 
just to step back and give you an example, uh, I knew uh, uh, Paul Sarbanes of Maryland going back to his early days in the House of Representatives. And for most of Sarbanes's career in the House and in the Senate, he was known inside as one of the premier legislative craftsmen. When a bill would come up, they would turn to Sarbanes to hone it, to make sure the language worked, to make sure that it was coherent and effective. But he didn't have any interest in co-sponsoring bills or having his name on things. And every time he ran for re-election, I'd get calls from reporters. He's being attacked because he's an ineffective legislator. And I had to educate reporters about how there are many ways to be an effective legislator. Now, it's ironic because in the end, what Sarbanes will have in the first paragraph uh, of his obituary is Sarbanes-Oxley. So he did become attached to a landmark piece of legislation. But for most of his career, if you did it quantitatively, you wouldn't have seen it. The issue with Bernie is if you do it quantitatively, other than the two things that I've mentioned, you wouldn't see it. But you're not likely to see his colleagues talking about how he was the legislative craftsman. Bernie is an outsider. We see that obviously on the campaign trail. Inside, he's been pragmatic at times when it was mostly necessary and important, but for a lot of it, it's been my way or the highway kind of approach. Right, so that leads to another question. If he's not writing legislation, and if his record on amendments is not particularly notable, He's an independent, you mentioned. He's not a Democrat, but he caucuses with the Democrats. What is his influence with his colleagues? You would expect, given his politics, that he would be trying to push them to the left. Has he been successful in his career in moving his colleagues to the left? I would say if you were going to pick a term to define Bernie in that sense, the term would be gadfly. He was out there setting out markers on the left. He was saying what they ought to be doing. To his great credit, when they needed that 60th vote for the Affordable Care Act, which did not meet his criteria on the left, he supported it. It would have gone down in flames without him. He was not happy with uh, the Dodd-Frank legislation on major banking reform. And both Dodd and Frank will tell you that he was not a, a force in any of that, but he voted for it. So he's voted for those things. But the fact is, if you're going to look at people pushing the party to the left, Elizabeth Warren, in a much shorter time in the Senate, has had more impact, impact on the legislative process and on the outcomes. During his time in the Senate, Al Franken, who was pragmatic in a lot of ways, but who added a more significant amendment to the Affordable Care Act that said that uh, private insurance companies on the exchanges had to put 85% of every dollar that they brought in into patients that saved billions of dollars who added to the Dodd-Frank legislation uh, something on ratings agencies that uh, pushed them at least to be more independent um, was more impactful. Uh, now, it's important in every legislative body to have those people who set out criteria and push the process a little bit further away from mindless compromises. And maybe we can give Bernie Sanders some credit for that. 
more in the Senate than in the House, where he really was a my way or the highway uh, guy. In a smaller body, he was, uh, you know, more cognizant of uh, his colleagues and what he needed, what they needed. But you can't say, I, I think, uh, other than those instances that I've mentioned, where he really did have a major impact on their outlook compared to where they would have been otherwise. Now, he never chose to become a Democrat. He remains an independent in Congress. But you mentioned a couple important bills where he was a crucial vote, the Affordable Care Act and the Dodd-Frank law. Did he ever distinguish himself as a maverick, someone who was willing to buck his buck his party, in this case, the Democrat? It, you know, inside the Senate, there were very few instances in which he really drove the leadership to distractions. I think a part of that was uh, Harry Reid was very effective at the former bringing, Senate majority, the former leader, Senate right. majority leader, and and a, a really effective leader. Uh, Harry Reid was effective at bringing him inside the tent, making it clear to him when his votes were needed. Now, here I would draw a contrast, for example, with a couple of mavericks from before his time who really drove their leaders to distraction. One was Howard Metzenbaum of Ohio, and Metzenbaum used the ability, you know, in the Senate, almost everything is done by unanimous consent. And if one senator objects, uh, you can bring the process to a halt. And when you're getting near the end of a session, when everybody wants to go home, either for a long weekend or a recess or at a campaign, if somebody doesn't allow key legislation, crucial legislation to make it, people are really unhappy. And you can use it for leverage. Metzenbaum used to do that regularly, uh, and both parties were unhappy about it. I would not say that Bernie has done that. And that, in fact, while he is a gadfly, he has been more pragmatic sometimes than he's given credit for. When the crucial votes would take place on overcoming filibusters, uh, on making sure that must-pass legislation actually made it through, on fulfilling the larger priorities like the Affordable Care Act, Bernie did not stand in the way of those things. But to say that he was an integral part of the decision-making process in the Senate within the Democratic Party, that he was close to most of those senators, despite the fact that he not only uh, wasn't a Democrat, but spurned the Democratic Party's endorsement in Vermont, that's not anything that I would say. His ability, if he became president, to call on party loyalty just isn't there. So a gadfly in the Senate, how does that person rise to become what is undeniably at this moment the front runner in the campaign for the Democratic nomination for president? So the first thing we can say is that if Bernie uh, or a character like Bernie, of course, given his age, he could have 40 years ago had run for the Democratic nomination or run for president or maybe even take it back a little further. Back when we didn't have all of these primaries and caucuses, back when activists who were not particularly closely attached to a party were not the major forces, there's no way Bernie Sanders would have come anywhere close to a nomination. And the fact that he was not a Democrat for a day in his life before he ran in 2016, where his top staffers said he's only doing this to run for the nomination 
when he gave up the party after he lost that nomination and only took up the designation again running this time would have driven the old party, not just bosses, but party officials to distraction. But we have a different process now. And we have a process where party leaders, despite having these superdelegates, are much less important. And where having a base of energized activists can help, but then there's another factor to consider. We are in a populist age. It's mostly been right-wing populism, but there is a left-wing element to it, and it is one that, like all populism, has disdain for elites and looks for dramatic change to upend those elites. You know, keep in mind that when Donald Trump talked about draining the swamp, even though the absurdity of it, as we look at it now, where he has put more and more fat alligators into that swamp, but that had a lot of appeal to people, the lobbyists, the Washington leaders and all of that, there is still, even in a party that wants robust government, this disdain for Washington and for the elites and the belief that they have not stood up to the evil forces in America, that they've been funded by, as Bernie would say, the millionaires and the billionaires. And that has an appeal to people. It is in some ways an unrealistic appeal. And the reality is, even if Bernie Sanders swept into office with a robust majority in the House, with more than 50 Democrats in the Senate, the likelihood of getting Medicare for all free college education, free uh, child care, and everything else would be zero. But Norm, you've painted a picture of a gadfly, but one who has gone along with the Democratic Party, has supported their main legislation. So how is he able to make the case to the public that he is upending the system, that he is rebuking the Democratic elites when he's spent a career in Congress backing their legislation? First, we have to keep in mind that most of those elites are not enthusiastically behind Bernie. Uh, Second, we have his rhetoric, which is, uh, as he did in a uh, famous tweet just recently, taking on the Democratic establishment as well as the Republican establishment, and saying, as he did when he lost the nomination in 2016, that it's all rigged against him. And of course, the fact is the WikiLeaks uh, release of the Democratic National Committee emails, selective as they were, showed a lot of people who uh, weren't exactly enthusiastic for him. We have all these other candidates now ganging up on him. He has a team of people around him who have never been a part of the Democratic Party's establishment. He has a press secretary who proudly proclaimed that she'd voted for Jill Stein And for voters out there, especially for that base of younger voters, that's all they need. That's all the evidence they need. And when you combine that with his policies, which are revolutionary policies, there's an appeal there. Now, you know, for those of us who have been around this track for a long time, we know that uh, this kind of rhetoric on policies bears no real resemblance to the reality of what it would take to govern. But for an awful lot of people out there, that doesn't mean very much. He's got an appeal to them. It's more an appeal to the heartstrings than it is to anything else, but that can easily be enough to win a nomination. 
Let's pretend it's next January. President Sanders has taken office. We've seen in the last couple of presidents, if not longer, a move to expand executive power through executive orders, through executive actions. It succeeded to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that a President Sanders would pursue his aims more through executive action than through Congress then? Uh, there's little doubt that uh, Sanders, unless there is a revolution much greater than I could conceive of, winning Senate seats that you can't imagine otherwise Democrats winning, uh, would be unable to get action in the legislative process. Now, one of the interesting parts of that is, as the South Carolina debate demonstrated, the one thing that would provide a sliver of a chance to make some of these things happen, blowing up the filibuster rule, is not something that Bernie was willing to embrace. Uh, He said that he would try and do most of his things through this process that we know called reconciliation, where you can waive a lot of the rules and the budget rules and act with a majority. That in the end, of course, is how we got the Affordable Care Act. It's how we've gotten the ginormous Republican tax cuts. But it's almost impossible under any set of rules to make that happen. So Sanders would almost certainly do what Trump especially has done, which is to expand to the breaking point and beyond uh, executive power. Uh, One of the things that's concerned a lot of Democrats, if it's concerned Republicans, they've said nothing about it, but they will say a whole lot if this uh, scenario unfolds, is that what Trump has done is to blow up all of the norms and restraints on that use of executive power. And he has, in the terms of uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late great senator from New York, defined deviancy down. The next president will take that as the starting point. How far you can go with that before Congress does push back. And after all, under Trump, the Republican Senate has been totally pliant and refused to take any steps that would assert its own authority. We can't say for sure, but there's very little doubt that Sanders' instinct would be to push the envelope further and further out on the use of executive power, which would be a further and further distortion of our constitutional system. A national emergency on student debt or on climate change, perhaps. You know, it's interesting that one of the things that has happened in the last three years is Congress has recognized to its horror that over decades, giving vast emergency powers to presidents and not removing them even when emergencies were over, under the assumption that a president would always be rational and act in the national interest, are still there when you have a president who doesn't act in the national interest, but acts for autocratic uh, ends and his own self-interest. Maybe uh, in the next presidency, Congress will start to take some steps to pare back on those powers. And if it's a Bernie Sanders presidency, you suddenly would have every single Republican in the House and Senate lined up to do that. Whether Democrats would be willing to go along is another question. Norm, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And now to the coronavirus, which is taking up much more of Congress's time as it threatens to spread across the United States. Is the U.S. ready? It's too early to say, give a definitive answer if we're ready. 
That is Nikki Clowers, Managing Director of the Healthcare Team at the Government Accountability Office, the watchdog for Congress. That is what she told us two weeks ago. What I can tell you is we've seen the government take a number of important steps to to mobilize and prepare uh, for the coronavirus or uh, maybe even a future infectious disease outbreak. It requires a lot of coordination and good understanding of people's roles and responsibilities. Because the last thing we want is sort of is to have all these entities involved and duplicating efforts, sending out conflicting information, inconsistent information, which we've actually seen in, in past outbreaks. The back and forth and general confusion this week in Congress, the administration, and among health officials would lead one to believe the U.S. is not ready. Well, your numbers aren't the same as CDC's. Then I would, I would certainly defer to CDC on our medical questions. Well, don't you think you ought to contact them and find out whether you're right or we're they're in, right? We're in contact with them every day on, this, on our task force. But you don't know why you have a discrepancy. And the American people Senator, deserve some straight answers on the coronavirus. And Senator, I'm not I, getting them from you. That's an exchange between Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, and Chad Wolf, the Secretary of Homeland Security. I'm going to be putting our Vice President Mike Pence in charge, and Mike will be working with the professionals, doctors, and everybody else that's working. The team is is brilliant. I spent a lot of time with the team over the last couple of weeks, but they're totally brilliant, and we're doing really well, and Mike is going to be in charge, and Mike will report back to me. Meanwhile, President Trump tapped Vice President Pence to spearhead government efforts to contain the virus and manage the response. It wants to spend $2.5 billion. Democratic leadership asked for more than three times that amount. I'm glad the administration has sent over a supplemental. We've been asking for that. But I believe it is totally inadequate, and we need a better job of making sure that we've got the diagnostics, the testing out across the country, and be prepared for something that's coming to us. That's Senator Patty Murray, the Democrat from Washington State. It is a fast-moving story, and to get the latest, we bring on Andrew Siddons, CQ Roll Call health reporter, for more. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Sean. So, Andrew, how worried should Americans be about this disease right now? I think it's difficult to say, especially given the somewhat mixed messages coming out of the Trump administration. Earlier this week, there was a CDC official who has very much been the the public face and voice of this response until now, saying that it was maybe time for families to start having conversations about what they need to do to prepare for an outbreak here. The way she made it sound and that some people interpreted it was that this could result in significant disruptions in people's lives. I think what she was trying to get at was that people should be prepared for things like more teleworking or schools being closed or having to cancel big events and just trying to think about how to prepare for things like that. In the days since then, the White House and President Trump have been trying to, I think, uh, assuage Americans' fears uh, while acknowledging that there are likely to be more cases here. President Trump appointed an official to lead our response. Who is that person and what's their job exactly? First, he appointed Vice President Mike Pence to be in charge of the response. Uh, Then Vice President Pence tapped uh, Ambassador Deborah Birx, who 
oversees the State Department's uh, HIV and AIDS uh, global health programs uh, to be the White House point person for this. At the same time, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar is still the chairman of the Coronavirus Task Force, which is a panel of about uh, a dozen officials from different uh, departments and agencies across the government. So while for a long time the White House has been you know, told by some on the Hill, you need to tap a single point person for this response in the White House, as soon as they did that, they, there continues to be questions, I think, about, you know, who exactly is, is in charge. What is the reaction in Congress and what is Congress doing? So congressional Democrats have not been very kind to the Trump administration on this. Uh, they, they've they been really attacking the administration for its proposed budget cuts uh, to CDC in fiscal 2021, uh, although, you know, to be sure, it is up to Congress to implement those cuts or not. Right now, they're talking about an emergency supplemental bill to fund the response. Uh, the White House asked for $2.5 billion, including one and a, would, half of which would be transferred from existing funding. Uh, but both Republicans and Democrats in Congress are looking at a much higher number, uh, somewhere probably between 6 and $8 billion. It would probably be all new funding without money being transferred away from existing programs. For the most of the last few weeks, most members of Congress have been trying to give the administration the benefit of the doubt in terms of this response and trusting the health officials and scientists at the CDC and National Institutes of Health to, you know, to do their jobs and get this done. But uh, there's been some growing frustration uh, as the weeks have worn on, and especially as the White House is getting more involved. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Listeners can find Andrew's stories at CQ.com and RollCall.com. And thank you for listening. I'm Sean Zeller. The producer of this show was Evan Campbell. CQ on Congress is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. We'll see you next week.